The Second Crusade has failed, but its end will open the door to the Plantagenets, that brilliant, avaricious, rebellious, murderous family that will dominate the history of Western Europe for a century to come. Here's their story, so riveting that we still are fascinated by it 900 years later. Welcome back to Lion's Forge. My name is Beckett, and I want to tell you a story, an epic, true story of five kings and the Lion Queen. Season 2, Episode 4 Behold, the Lord and Ruler Cometh No, Henry Plantagenet was no Geoffrey LaBelle, but just the same, he was utterly compelling. His looks were no match for his famously handsome fathers, but the chronicler Walter Mapp said you could scarcely take your eyes off him. What Henry had, recognized and commented upon time after time, was blast furnace energy, combined with a formidable intellect and a remarkable memory. Normans already had a reputation for, among other things according to impressed contemporaries, being untroubled by hard work, hunger, or cold. This particular Norman carried that trait to its limit. The man never could sit still. One of his intimates noted with exasperation, quote, Solomon says there are three things difficult to be found, the way of an eagle in the air, the way of a ship in the sea, and the way of a serpent on the ground. I can add another, the way of a new king in England. Whatever drove him, drove him hard. One can picture him at a council meeting, leaping up from his seat a dozen times in the hour, pacing the chamber, going to the window to assess the weather, chafing to be out in the open air with his dogs, his horses, and his ever-present falcons. Favored activities were those done on horseback all day long, good weather or bad, with hunting, hawking, and war high on the list. And he was very good at all of them. He was never considered very pious. In addition to flouting God's preferred way of moderation in almost every aspect of his hectic life, there are stories in the Chronicles that even during Mass, he'd be found talking to his retinue, or doodling like a schoolboy. However, he was generous with his alms purse, to the point of shipping lead at enormous expense to lend a hand with a new roof at Clairvaux. A gift of lead sounds just like him, since the man, for all his noble background, was entirely unpretentious. After all, he was no king's son. Given the low-born status of many of the church-educated clerks who worked in his government, his affable ease with them would be a plus. It was said he'd laugh even when a joke was directed squarely at him. There's a story that a courtier once brazenly mocked that the king was nothing but the descendant of the bastard son of a tanner's daughter since William the Conqueror, Henry's great-grandfather, 
was the illegitimate son of the Duke of Normandy and a local wench believed to be the daughter of a laborer ranking near the very bottom of medieval society. The room must have quivered into silence when that remark was made. But wit won out. Henry roared. Walter Mapp, a close observer of society and its gossip, who would write a book titled The Trifles of Courtiers, knew Henry well. He obviously enjoyed the man, describing a king plunging into the streets where he'd almost be bowled over by enthusiastic crowds eager to see his face and hear his voice. Henry, famous throughout history for his notorious temper, willingly tackled those crowds, turning a patient ear and open face to everyone who caught him up. A generous man who'd tip his sailors after a tough channel crossing, he liked people, and he liked solving their problems. Still, for all that affability, he also knew what he had become. At his court, anyone addressing him, including imperious aristocrats, respectfully called him my lord king, nothing less. You knelt at the throne, even if you were a great noble, and if you were of truly inferior stuff, lay face down at his feet. His rooms, his robes, his bedding, all were the best to be had. He might laugh with you, but he was still a king, and you most certainly were not. One of the bishops who knew him commented approvingly that other kings were of a rude and uncultivated character, but Henry's was of far better stuff, and it was, most amazingly, formed by reading books. People marveled that he'd read just for fun, a habit he probably picked up from his book-loving father. He was indeed blessed with a fine mind, excellent education, and notable self-discipline, probably the most intelligent monarch of his time, enlightened, thoughtful, and graced with an exceptional memory, Henry's brain was part and parcel of a vast zest for sheer hard work. His new wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, came from a family bored blind at the prospect of grappling with laws, courts, and regulations. Her new husband, however, cared deeply about systems, about how to get things done, a fortunate inclination given the huge, rowdy, and complicated kingdom he had made for himself. And he understood the value of having talented men at his side. One of his courtiers, Peter of Blois, said that in Henry's orbit it was school every day. There was always conversation with scholars and learned discussion of the many problems of the day. He also had a fearsome reputation for possessing the temper of a wolverine. It's hard to tell how much was theatrics. Stories abound of his rages, agitated chroniclers insisting he could become so infuriated that he'd bring on a virtual fit of a tantrum, flinging off his clothes, rolling on the floor, yanking at fistfuls of his own hair, and stuffing his mouth with whatever was at hand, from the straw that covered the floor 
to the coverlets on a daybed. He wasn't entirely play-acting. There are extensive records of his subjects paying what basically amounted to bribes, so their frightening lord would put aside his anger. Henry's frothing indignation apparently could be triggered by even paltry transgressions, such as the royal storm unleashed on an unfortunate soul named Robert Bellet, who lost most of his land along with a prized position, and was fined so heavily he spent the next twenty years paying it off, all because the Lord King Henry was angry with him over a sparrowhawk. Some years down the road, that temper would lead all the way to murder. Taking after both Eleanor's grandfather and his own, Henry displayed a lifelong randy fondness for bedding the ladies. We know the names of several established royal mistresses who presented him with at least two small acknowledged royal bastards to run along with his eight legitimate children. Not long after his marriage to Eleanor, in fact, Henry acknowledged a baby named Geoffrey as his. Geoffrey's mother and birthday are murky. The legend is that she was a Saxon whore named Ikenai. Eleanor was gracious or astute enough to accept the child, who was raised at his father's palace at Westminster. We'll see young Geoffrey quite often as the years go by, and frequently be confused, because there were a number of Geoffreys in Henry's immediate family. Henry's father, of course, who donated his name to Henry's younger brother, and, incredibly to us, to a legitimate son of Henry's who would carry the very same name as his half-brother. The illegitimate Geoffrey would eventually become a ranking English churchman, a chancellor of England, a force in the family and one of the few people who stuck by Henry throughout his life. The legitimate Geoffrey, well, he would live a different life as an acknowledged prince, but not one with the best of luck or the firmest sense of loyalty. There's no way of knowing how many women, whether high-born or whore, caught Henry's eye, but it scarcely matters. His marriage to Eleanor of Aquitaine would prove so memorable that poets and playwrights mined it for drama for centuries after all the principals were dead, and still do to this day. On the whole, one might say his life would be worth the effort. And what of Eleanor? When did she understand what she had done? Married to Louis Capet, she had been the dazzler, the duchess who could make a king, the Circe of a thousand fantasies. Now she was joined to a comet. Eleanor could never escape Henry. There was nowhere left to go unless it was a nunnery. She was bound until death. When did she see it? But just now, in the early days of that ferocious marriage, the two had to be pleased with their lives. Let's consider the summer of 1152, when Henry Plantagenet, barely out of his teens, had inherited all of Anjou and Normandy from his parents, and just married his way to the Aquitaine. In short order, he had scooped up a goodly part of Western Europe, 
with little more effort than it would take to pick an apple. England, his mother's gift if it could be taken, lay just beyond the channel. It left his own people breathless. A writer of the day named Gerald of Barry referred to Henry's success as almost oceanic, swamping all frontiers. No other great lord, most certainly not his neighbor Louis Capet, could match him in lands or wealth. Infinite possibility wrapped the newlyweds Henry and Eleanor like a sable cloak. You can feel the power and the pride behind the charter she issued as a bride that summer. I, Eleanor, by the grace of God, Duchess of Aquitaine and Normandy, united with the Duke of Normandy, Henri, Count of Anjou. Their symbol of golden lions fluttered from flagstaffs on every hillside for hundreds of miles. Yet having territory and keeping it were two very different things. On the continent, Louis Capet would inevitably take Henry on to block Plantagenet ambitions along their joint borders. In England, where his ambition might not match reality, Henry faced the man who had dispossessed his mother, Stephen of Blois, King of England, backed by Stephen's truculent son and heir, Eustace. We've already met Stephen of Blois, grandson of the Conqueror. Only half English by birth, Stephen had the ambition and guile to betray his cousin Matilda, aided and abetted by nobles who were willing to renege on three separate oaths of fealty sworn at the feet of a woman. The civil war that came of that double cross had ebbed and flowed across twenty years of English life, and a thousand miles of English hills and fields. It was still going on when Henry married Eleanor, but things were about to change. When the Golden Fates stepped into the Plantagenet battle for supremacy in their world, they started in Normandy. Louis Capet, infuriated at Eleanor's remarriage that sucked the Aquitaine from French hands, attacked her new husband across the Norman borders. His army was bolstered by alliances with Stephen's son Eustace and with Henry's own younger brother Geoffrey, the same aggrieved fellow who had probably been cheated out of Anjou by his brother and who had tried to kidnap Eleanor as she rode away from Beaugency. Henry's response to the Capetian threat was classic Henry, clever, tough, and fast. He ran his troops so hard that majestically fit warhorses carrying his knights dropped dead under the strain. Within months, Louis and his allies felt compelled to limp away from Normandy and bargain a truce, the first of a thousand between Louis and Henry. Norman lands, craved by the French, were solidly in Plantagenet hands. Henry's men needed rest and refitting before pivoting across the channel to take Stephen on and avenge Henry's mother Matilda, so now there was time, weeks of unbroken time, one of the few such periods Henry and Eleanor would have in their course of nearly forty years of marriage. Introducing her new husband to her Aquitanian barons, Eleanor showed Henry the beautiful country she had brought him. 
where men talked of poetry and age-old myths, wine was flavorful, hawks soared against the skies, and lazy golden sunlight brushed castle walls. We catch sight of only one small disturbance in all those wonderful days. It happened outside the city of Limoges. It was customary for locals to show their appreciation and loyalty to their lord by providing food when he happened to visit them. This time, though, hungry entourage, no food. A representative from the town was pulled to Henry's tent to explain. The doubtlessly frightened man maintained that tradition held that food need only be brought if the Lord was within the city's walls, not camped outside as Henry was. This insistence on form over substance was not well received. According to the story, Henry's legendary temper broke the way a typhoon would, so insanely fraught with foaming, lashing fury that onlookers feared for their own safety. The story goes on that Henry had the offending walls torn down, presumably convincing others down the road not to try the same insolent trick. One does wonder if Eleanor watched with dismissive calm, accustomed since childhood to towering personalities who saw no particular need for disciplined self-control. Then, as the lovely honeymoon summer ebbed, messengers came pounding in from England. This time, they carried news of King Stephen and an army of his mercenaries on the march against Wallingford Castle, a stronghold long loyal to Matilda. Wallingford was the property of a man named Brian Fitzcount, a personal friend of old Beauclerk's, devoted throughout his life to Beauclerk's daughter Matilda, and now to her son, Fitzcount was in trouble, with the full brunt of Stephen's army directed at his walls. He sent word that if Henry couldn't reinforce him, he'd be obliged to surrender. Surrender meant that a variety of thoroughly unpleasant things would happen. The place would be sacked, giving Stephen's soldiers all the incentive they'd need to stay with him for another six or eight months. A valuable castle would be in enemy hands. Control of the castle would deepen Stephen's grip on the country while weakening Matilda's. Fitzcount needed Henry. Probably to Fitzcount's serious dismay, Henry had to stay on in France through the fall and into the Christmas holidays to keep his fist cocked against the rebels of his own in Normandy, Anjou, and the Aquitaine, roiled by the Capetians to their east. Henry was so busy with the locals, it's remarkable he found time to get 30-year-old Eleanor pregnant with their first child. Yet the man didn't forget Fitzcount. Plantagenet agents worked the Norman ports making deals with moneylenders and assembling what English spies had to guess was an invasion fleet. Three dozen ships, capable of a wintry channel crossing, each carrying eighty men and four knights with their horses. By January, Henry felt confident enough in France to go after Stephen. On January 6, 1153, the Feast of the Three Kings, 
after a channel crossing that meshed frigid temperatures with vomit-inducing salt seas, Henry and his army landed on England's southern coast. The faithful were in church that holy day, where the liturgy included the Latin phrase, Behold the Lord and Ruler cometh. It was as if God himself acknowledged Henry Plantagenet's arrival in England. Here was the aspiring Lord and Ruler, delivered safely across the storm-whipped waters with 3,000 foot soldiers and 140 Norman knights, the best in the world. By the day he landed, England had seen almost two decades of struggle and suffering, through what some despairingly thought a never-ending civil war over the question of who would rule the English, Stephen or Matilda, his son or hers. It happened so long ago, in some gray historical pre-dawn, or so we think. But to those living through it, the time was as vividly awful as our own can be. Chroniclers clutched their pens as they wrote of what they described as slaughter, fire, rape, hunger, horror upon horror, years of woe, poor men paying dearly for this rich men's fight. Historian Anne Trindade quotes a riveting description of what one of these so-called raids could be like. It's from a slightly later period, but the reality of it is so vivid that we can almost smell the chaos. Burning were the dwellings, their floors caved in, while the wine was spilling everywhere, flooding the cellars, and the bacon slabs were aflame as the larders collapsed. The burning fat made the flames leap higher, reaching the towers and the highest steeple, until the rooftops gave way and crashed to the ground. Between the two walls of a burning convent, the fire blazed so fiercely that the nuns were burned in the conflagration, all hundred of them in one calamitous stroke. The bravest knights weep with pity. Both sides, Stephen's and Matilda's, were equally vicious. Men caught out on a bad day by the wrong people were hung upside down and smoked alive, strung to hang by their thumbs, tortured with knotted cords wrapped and twisted around their skulls. One witness testified that Stephen and his allies wrecked the lovely old market town of Salisbury, trampling and murdering, a king willing to ruin the lives of his own subjects to make a point. Henry, fighting for his mother, was scarcely idle or innocent. He saw to it that Nottingham was charred to ash. Terror of both sides was so profound that trade virtually stopped, since no sane man was willing to risk coming upon strangers. The dynastic war in England was not making anyone richer or happier. People were getting weary of the whole spiteful mess. Stephen, in particular, was floundering. His failure to bring this ugly civil war to an end as two decades slowly, heavily passed, spread sorry wreckage across his own lands. After enough of it, wreckage is dispiriting. Alliances without victories wear out. People of all classes got poorer by the year. The only thing that gained strength 
was the idea of building a defensive castle on every tiny knob of ground. Nobles who had shrugged as they betrayed Matilda to secure themselves a king were now pricked by guilty consciences that whispered England's agony might be their fault. Stephen would not live forever, after all. Perhaps the day had arrived to try to resolve all the years of burning ruination. The great men of the day, who kept up an active correspondence, began to talk among themselves for ways to end the fighting. Private treaties began to circulate, individual barons seeking ways to stop the local fighting so their people could plant fields and repair roads. Henry's audacity at invading England on the Feast of the Three Kings of 1153 was thus as timely as it was bold. People wanted something new, and here it was. With this daring prince on the doorstep, rallying his mother's old allies and luring many of Stephen's, things at last began to move. Stephen and his son Eustace tried hard, which naturally meant burning and plundering every grain of wheat, piglet, fence, and wall that could give aid to Henry's forces. But Henry was unfazed. Here was a general. With Fitzcount still bottled up at Wallingford, Stephen no doubt expected Henry to try to break that stalemate, where the young aggressor would be confronted with a nasty established siege in the mud, snow, and cold of an English winter the countryside stripped bare of supplies. Henry would have none of it. Instead, he attacked a royal stronghold at Malmesbury, luring Stephen to pull up stakes and come running to him on the banks of the Avon. Veterans who fought there swore later that God himself took Henry's side, scouring Stephen's men head-on with torrents of freezing, wind-whipped rain there was a grudging truce. The kingdom started pondering the idea that perhaps there really was something to this energetic Plantagenet. We've come to the end of our story for the time being. I am Beckett Arnold, narrating from the book Lion's Forge, adapted for us by the author Karen Markle Nab. Thank you to Francis Butt for voicing our introduction. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating follow our channel, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, please join us again January 22nd for the next episode of Lion's Forge, available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts, streaming on YouTube with video episode trailers, and on Facebook, where you can ask questions, leave reviews, and interact with me. Until next time, thank you for listening.